Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. October 20th, 2019, episode 161. To treat or not to treat? Hello, one and all. Thanks for taking the time to sign on and check in on our little corner of the world where we talk about beekeeping. My name is Kevin England. I'm both excited and hesitant to do what I'm about to do. Is this topic for this episode, it just might be one of the most polarizing things when considering how one can keep bees. What is unnerving for me is that I'm going to have the audacity to try and explain a philosophy that I do not practice. And honestly, it has me wondering if this attempt is going to be allowed and the dialogue accepted for what it is. Because I hope to explore the merits for the topic of promoting it. But it could be condemned, as I am someone who has no business talking about going treatment-free after being someone who has publicly not endorsed it for so long. I don't like having to profess one way over another, especially when I know that treatment-free is a real thing, and it works under the right conditions. I say that when I'm asked, but I never really get the chance to expand on what I really think of the topic in any meaningful way until today. I make no bones about being emphatic as a beekeeping educator that treating is the way to go. It's based upon the premise that experience and data show me that treatment-free in this local environment of New Jersey is not proven successful. And I want to be good to beekeepers who entrust in me to provide wisdom that is going to help them succeed. I heard this in church this morning, and I'm going to repeat it for the purposes of making a point. A pitcher in a baseball game takes the mound and gives the sign of the cross, ending with an acknowledgement glance upward. Then the batter, stepping into the box, gives the sign of the cross, kisses his fingers, and raises them up to the sky. The question is, which one does God favor? As a spectator witnessing this, I will, of course, wish that God will favor the one that plays for my team. (laughs) But I really don't wish ill will on the other. In fact, I likely love baseball, and in the end, it's the love of the game that is the true blessing. I feel the same way about beekeeping. If you are a treatment-free beekeeper, I'm rooting for you. Above all, I want you to succeed because that would be good for all of us, and such a blessing. So it feels like time. I've harbored the ideas about gathering enough confidence to do this episode for quite some time now, and I feel like it is time to take it head on. And to that point, if it's not evident, this is going to be a singularly focused episode with only one topic, treatment-free beekeeping. It's kind of an opinion editorial to explore the topic 
and give it room to talk about this in some amount of detail. I am smart enough to realize that I'm going to consider this today a starting point. Someday in the future I'll come back to this episode and realize I had it right, I kind of had it right, I had it wrong, or oh boy, man, I really got it all wrong. But I think this is the time to document an idea that has coalesced enough and I just have to get it out of my head. I have a number of people over the years who have politely taken issue with me on a few of my opinions, and I know that this topic in particular is one that many who embrace the treatment-free lifestyle, they loathe my point of view. The second most thing I received the feedback about is my commentary about the non-value of quality queens, buying and sourcing quality queens. And there I think I'm misunderstood, and here too I'll have a chance to talk about this. So look, you may consider all of this folly, or you may consider this an interesting exploration. I won't know until social media puts me in my place about the attempt, but whatever the case, I think it's important for the ideas to be shared, presented, debated, and it makes us all informed to hear different sides of management practices. And I'm ready to put myself out there. And this is how I intend to do it. The plan is to do this in four acts. Act number one, treatment-free beekeeping. Acknowledging it's real, the principles as I understand it, and talking about the dynamics of the practice. Act two, what I do not hear being said, what I suspect is required to make it work, and I will talk about why I do not think it's for everyone, and especially us in New Jersey. Act 3. I will talk about the complications of queen genetics and clear the air. Why I feel like it is akin to Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill for many of us. And Act number 4. Counting the ways to go treatment free. I'm going to present four ways this can go down and for my typical audience present the idea of towards treatment-free approach, which mm, encourages you to treat in order to be treatment-free. And I'll explain that when I get there. And then I'll sum up the episode with some closing comments. So I hope you'll stay with me, and I hope you'll have an open mind, and think through all the different things that I'm raising as interesting topic matters in this discussion about treatment-free beekeeping. Act 1, Treatment-Free Beekeeping Treatment-Free Beekeeping is a management approach that works. Did you expect it to be the lead-off sentence? I know, you probably didn't see that coming. I have another disclosure. I would love nothing more than to join in. Completely and utterly treatment-free. Who knew? But that's not much of a leap, as I think pretty much everybody would be motivated to get to that space. If we count the ways of treatment-free beekeeping, the other advantages are better stock, more suitable for survival, inherent genetic traits, the ones we desire. It's less expensive to manage 
with no costs required to put those treatments in and no labor required to administer treating. We're not putting harsh chemicals in our hives. And if we have healthier, better stock, chances are they're going to make us more honey. At the end of the day, all that is nice, but it comes back to one of the root things that treatment-free people want, and people in general, is to get back to nature. It's what nature intended. So who would not want to be a treatment-free beekeeper? There's a more primal impact that we can get on board with. If we think back to the days of yore, and we hear the stories pre-might, we know how simple it was. Put bees in a box and harvest honey. I really believe that one of the things that motivates a lot of people in these days of super busy schedules is they'd like things to be simpler. And certainly a treatment-free lifestyle has to be simpler. If I think about this, though, there are documented cases where beekeepers are keeping bees with no treatments. So why don't we know more? They're not using chemicals. Maybe they're using treatment-free-esque beekeeping practices. Maybe they're not. It's, it's hard to say. You know, I think we would all love to be there, myself included, but these cases where people are having success, they seem special to me. I don't mean special in that others are not having success, but special in that they are rarely documented with independent inspections that have verified that the bees are surviving in absence of treatments, and, more importantly, are capturing what's going on to allow that to happen. For every one of these things, these cases we learn about, there's dozens upon dozens of beekeepers communicating daily on the web and they're keeping bees treatment-free, yet we know really very little about what they're doing. And there's a penchant in forums and on the webs from those who cannot seem to make it work in their operation to cast doubt or deny success. But to me, common sense dictates that the sheer number of beekeepers in the exchange are proof enough it works. It works. There's too much evidence to the contrary. I do believe, however, and it has to be acknowledged, that some of these treatment-free beekeepers are making claims that are patently untrue in the spirit of trying to express that they're doing treatment-free approach. And the funny thing is, is it's not my belief. This is treatment-free beekeepers calling out other treatment-free beekeepers as frauds. So I see it on enough of occasion to know that it's one of the little idiosyncrasies of this environment. One only has to observe treatment-free community sites to witness some of this behavior. But to be balanced, I see the same thing every day in beekeepers who treat. Their incredulous claims of how many of their hives made it through and all this other stuff. So the key is to understand the backstory, apply biology and science and independent thinking and look for evidence and put the proper amount of scrutiny and that ferrets things out and the truth will come to pass. I think to understand why this occurs you have to step back and define treatment free and you'll come to know where part of this dissension comes from. It's treatment free? It's in the eye of the beholder. By its nature, 
treatment-free means you do not put treatments in your hive. No treatments, period. Where this gets murky is the loose nature of what treatment really means. I commonly see two disparities coming up, but I need you to keep in mind that there are more. But we're going to focus on these two so we can keep the topic moving. The first is management practices. A purist, if I could use that word illustratively, will say that the truest form of treatment-free is to let them be. And by that I mean, literally, let them be. Put them in a box, put the lid on, nothing added, no swarm prevention, no inspections, no splits, just bees in the box. I'm being very, very harsh about that. There's probably a little room on certain people's radar for that, but illustratively, let them be. There is, as one has to point out, one concession, which is, you put them in a box. It's not natural. That's the only thing permitted. And at times, beekeepers will go as far as housing bees, housing colonies, in natural structures. You know, but for the sake of this discussion, we're going to move past what you keep them in. It's a purpose-built structure for holding bees. As soon as you do things to manipulate the colony, you may be construed as treating. This is number two. You introduce foreign materials into the hive, you may be treating. And this is where some of that dissension comes in. Flavors, or fractions, of treatment-free beekeepers see certain practices or actions as permissible, and others do not. To expand on that, some are okay with artificial swarming or making splits, if you prefer that descriptor. Some are okay with natural teas, chemicals, essential oils, feeding the bees, and other more or less mainstream practices, especially when they have an aspect of natural or organic approaches. It might be palatable in some places to refer to the treatment-free practices by other similar terms like natural beekeeping, organic beekeeping. I can even make a point that biodynamic beekeeping is eh, treatment-free enough in the aspect to let it venture into the form of some sort of treatment-free style beekeeping. The definition of a treatment is very important and often hotly debated amongst some while somewhat of a guideline amongst the others. One has to tread lightly when you're in where people are sharing ideas because I've seen some pretty direct and occasionally harsh behavior. Now, I said I was going to be nice and not put down treatment-free beekeepers, and I'm not. But if there's one place that I will take issue with people, it's when they become a troll. I have no tolerance for trolls, none. To me, it's the internet equivalent of bullying, but I digress. I see discussions where people are talking about treatment-free and asking for clarity. And depending on who they ask and who's around that day, they'll get different answers. There are certain areas where you're not allowed to do anything. No splits, no feeding, no this. And other times people say it's okay as long as you're not putting chemicals in the hive. If it all sounds ambiguous, do not kill the messenger. 
Maybe there's no recipe because a recipe is not needed. Simply the principle of let them live until they die. If that's what it's really all about, then I must be missing something because there sure is a lot of discussion going on that makes me think it's not that cut and dry. And practices vary, and truth be told, it's all about how you do it personally, independently of others, or whatever group you prescribe to and you follow their practices. You own the decision no matter what it's called, but, you know, you get to pick what methodology you run with. I, I was thinking at one point about making an analogy to persons who don't eat meat, vegans, pescatarians. Some have rules that they don't eat anything that has parents. It's the same idea. If you ask what it means, if you're not in the know, it's really difficult sometimes to figure that out. Moving on from practices, let's talk about some other principles. One of the key goals is sustainability. As a treatment-free beekeeper, you will be sustainable. Through our actions, bees will continue to thrive with little to no intervention from humans. The environment's going to benefit from stronger bees. And if you let bees live or die by traits, the strong and moderate will survive and the lesser Weaker bees will be culled from the earth. In a form of survival of the fittest, those bees that can continue the lineage by the sheer fact that they survived, especially in this day of pesticides, varroa, and other pressures, they have proven that they have the right stuff. I guess in some instances it could be luck or circumstances that got them through, but mostly we will try to attribute it to good stock and good genetics. Now, if you're doing this, one can let nature dictate who survives by letting things be, or through this hybrid vigor approach, one can steer the universe. What is interesting to consider is the journey of a new beekeeper. We all have to start somewhere. As a new beekeeper, you could take up one of four options to start. You could buy a package. Probably not the best way to start a true treatment-free approach, but mm, you could do it nonetheless. You could buy a nucleus colony. Especially good if it is a locally adapted bee colony that you buy from somebody in your neighborhood. You could source a swarm. You could get bees from another treatment-free beekeeper for a good head start. The source of a swarm is a special one because it comes with options to start with feral bees. Ferals, as opposed to some swarm from an unspecified source, constitute bees not kept by man, but ones that have demonstrated the ability to survive in nature without any intervention from man. It is surmised to do this they have achieved sustainability and are suitable for our pursuit. Contrast this with swarms that came from a beekeeper in the neighborhood who has been artificially propping up their bees with treatments and thwarting the resistance. Not a good way to go. It's not really what we want. Feral bees. True sourced feral bees rule. And there's no better way to get off to a treatment-free start. With all that being said, my thought is, is that feral is probably not the most common way that people start. I think most people start beekeeping by 
ordering packages, which are not really conducive to treatment-free, because they're just generalized bees. Yes, I should say that some package producers are focused on good genetics, but they're not local bees. They usually come up on a truck from the south or wherever they're getting shipped from. But the truth of the fact is, a lot of treatment-free beekeepers get started with package bees. Have we said you could buy a nuke locally sourced? But another choice could be to buy bees that were bred explicitly to try and be treatment-free. By that I mean you could source Russian bees. They were brought over to the United States because they have some measure of tolerance of mites because the Asian bees and the Russian bees have dealt with the mites longer and therefore they can handle some mite loads and Russian Bee Breeders Association is providing bees and a treatment-free person could seek that avenue. There is one other thing you could do which may or may not be common but we have no idea or control over how people get started which is to start with common bees but then source specialty queens. Queens that are hygienic stock. Queens that have been artificially inseminated for certain traits. All of these things are ways that new beekeepers can start. And later we'll talk about how that works for them and why that may or may not go in their favor. But we have to agree that treatment-free and how you get started, it's an important philosophy, an important aspect to the equation and there's not a lot of information about how treatment-free beekeepers get their start out there which is one of those things that it would be fascinating to do surveys on. I'm going to move along to Act 2. Not so much about the dynamics but more about in practice what's going on. What I do not hear being said and what I suspect is required to make it work. So it all seems so easy when you hear the proponents talk about it. I don't mean easy as in simple, I mean easy as in approach. Just don't treat, some bees will survive, keep breeding from them, and in time, with that effort, you'll get ahead of the curve, and all of your bees will turn the corner, and you will not have to worry about losses to stressors and pressures. Now I've been to lectures, followed blogs, studied experience on forums, watched videos, just about all that one could do to seek information on the treatment-free way of keeping bees. If the way is clear and you're willing to roll up your sleeves, why is it that more beekeepers are not treatment-free? Why does this appear to be a fringe practice and it's not the mainstream. It's certainly going back to human nature a lot simpler to do this. Is there a factor or factors that impart success make it more suitable for some but impossible for others? As a beekeeper, centered in the heart of the Mid-Atlantic Corridor, which is Boston to Washington DC, why is this practice not as evident when you hear all the prominent treatment-free beekeepers sharing their wisdom? What can be made of the treatment-free 
beekeeper pundit saying that treaters have it backwards. These are all the things that I'm thinking about. There has always been a conundrum for me, but I have my beliefs developed over the years through observation of real-world interaction with beekeepers that I interact with. And I have simple answers to what it does or does not take to get it to work. But I'm trying to explore all the angles. I think it's best if we turn over some notions and think this through with some detail. And I'm going to tackle those questions and possibly some others along the way. I think many of us subscribe to the notion that beekeeping is local. The U.S. has various topologies, climates, sunlight patterns, plants, other factors. So it's safe to say that diversity is, without a doubt, a factor. Now, humans, in the way we propagate in our surroundings, are also a factor. And by that I mean how we congregate the cities, how we do building plans, how we uh, plan city maps and things like that. The fact is we all live in different circumstances. Environments, elevation, human occupation, roadways, infrastructure, density, weather. These are the factors that sustain our bees and all of them come into play. I think if we allow our imaginations to ponder these facts, we could even come up with more unique characteristics of our individual surroundings that make one place more suitable than another. The valid impacts are wide, but there's one thing we have to focus on, which is at the heart of treatment or treatment-free. In essence, it's about Varroa. No one mistakes the concept of treat means treat for Varroa. And... I could say that looking backwards, saying that we recognize that we used to treat for wax moth, treat for tracheal mites. We used to medicate for this ailment or the other ailment. But today, it's all about Varroa. And actually, I would speculate, it's two factors in combination. Enemy number one is Varroa. I think we can all stand shoulder to shoulder and acknowledge that Varroa has changed the viability of our survival for our colonies. But it's not the only thing. I said in combination, and the presence of Varroa, I will marry the second factor, which is proximity, and especially proximity of hives. Varroa travel between hives, and when they're closer together, there are more pressures of mites moving from hive to hive. If a tree falls in the woods, does anyone hear it? The connection is, if a hive died in isolation, would we care? Probably not. But because of density, hives do not die in isolation. And evidence suggests that when a hive dies, it has the potential to impact colonies external to the local colony, and that makes that single event a combination problem. I try to be polite, but one question I always try to find the answer to in some kind of informal survey, if you will, is when someone identifies as a treatment-free beekeeper, I ask, well, where are you? Let's take New York as an example. New York is a really diverse area. You could live 
along the eastern coast of New York, above New York City and south of Connecticut, and be in a densely populated, highly affluent, probably hive after hive after hive location. Or you could live in the upper northwest corner out in the middle of the mountains with nobody around. There's a complete difference between those two. Maybe you live away from population and maybe your property is surrounded by protected lands in the form of right-of-ways for the government or power companies or natural parks or something. You know, you could live in Saskatchewan or Oregon or someplace remote from the others. Who knows? I made this up. But the point is, there might not be a beekeeper for miles. If you do the math and could surmise that a property like that might not have mite pressures from any of the other non-treaters, you could start with good stock, you may possibly have good forage, no competition, and you could keep making things the way you want it to be, it would be a bee nirvana. Then you work hard for a couple years with feral bees, you're breeding your survivors, and in time you build an apiary that anyone could admire, and it has resistance with bees that require no treatment. I mean, to me, when I hear of those who have success, this is a little of what I anticipate the backstory to be. But again, there's no records as to what it takes and what the profile is, what the persona is of somebody doing these things. It adds up to what I take in my estimation to be the best place to succeed. And I'm just taking facts that I know to be true, and I'll put them together. And this is the example. I have good land. I have good bees. I have good management from a beekeeper who's experienced and understands what it takes. There's good weather. I've made good selection choices, started with good stock, propagated my survivors. And most of all, I have the proximity to either be the biggest beekeeper or control the interference from surrounding beekeepers that help me move my situation along. Now, if I play devil's advocate and I take these bees that were surviving in that scenario and I put them in the epicenter of the Mid-Atlantic Corridor, New Jersey, the literal halfway point between Boston and Washington, D.C., and to be even more specific, central New Jersey, where I am, is the literal halfway point. It's 55 miles one way to New York and 60 miles to Philadelphia the most densely populated state in the U.S., put that hive that was doing well in the other condition right in the center of this with beekeepers all over the place, and let's see how that plays. People settled here, meaning the East Coast, in the beginning of our nation when we first established the United States. Then over time they spread west into all corners. And by proxy, we have the oldest infrastructure and higher population areas of metropolitan areas. Couple that with the fact that New Jersey is fairly affluent. So, if you want, most have the means to buy hives and start this hobby with what I'll say is earned or sometimes disposable income. There are beekeeping supply houses all around us. The pressures of population to be green by well-educated people who saw all the farmlands get conserved 
consumed by developments. I mean, we want to embrace it. We're the garden state. And to come back to our farming roots and heritage, it's in a daily message all around us, what we hear from our communities. And cutting to the chase in this corridor, we have beehives everywhere. I once tested this with the former state apiarist to determine if this was perception or could some evidence come to back up those suspicions. Tim said, and I'm paraphrasing, there are hives everywhere. Not only the hives he knows of via the state registrations, but hives he knows of from traveling the state. He talked one time of a town up north where I said there probably wasn't that many hives, to give an example in this kind of conversation. He said to the contrary, he started expressing knowledge of hives that were in this place, and another place, and adjacent one there, and another one there. I thought the place was jibip. The takeaway is just about every hive in New Jersey is within flying distance of another hive, and in many cases, there are several multitudes within flying distance of each other. Now, don't get me wrong, New Jersey has some open spaces. Sussex, Warren, Cumberland, and there's other locales. But I bet one would be surprised at the density if a study was ever truly done to get an accurate inventory. On top of that, if we do some math about the factors that impart success, there are so many new beekeepers with so many packages. There's so much competition for forage. And like other places, monoculture. They cut the sides of the roads down, all the things I talk about on this cast. The weather's okay, and weather is weather, so I guess we'll disqualify that. I don't think there's a great, huge run of selection for feral stock or hygienic queen. This is not the norm around here. It's just not available in that amount of supply, even if it were. And anything that is sourced, that's hygienic, which I'll talk about later, or feral, probably gets lost in the noise and diluted. If I think about this in contrast to other places in the United States, we are the anti-environment <laughs> treatment-free friendly location. Now, of course, there are some pockets of isolation where theoretically a treatment-free approach would thrive in New Jersey. But what are the chances that those nooks and crannies in the corridor are occupied by established treatment-free savvy beekeepers? It's probably slim. Uh, Kevin moment. I have to say, ironically, that Nirvana is probably not far away. I could literally go across the Delaware River west to Pennsylvania along Route 78 and find a property with the isolation and attributes I just spoke of. I'm positive I could find places along Route 81 north of East Stroudsburg and out by the Poconos, which really isn't that far of a drive from us. I think that any place where I could walk out and see the stars at night might be suitable, but we do not have that here. End of Kevin moment. Now, treatment-free beekeepers, or you in general might say, so what? Get over it. Good bees are good bees. I think there's nuggets of truth to that, but I also think that in the end it doesn't mean much. 
I'm not a treatment-free expert, but I do know one thing. I have encountered a really large number of beekeepers in my travels, and I cannot, I can't recount, but a handful of New Jersey beekeepers that are declaring themselves as successful treatment-free beekeepers. I don't know any. I want to know them so bad. So this is an honest answer. If you are one of them and you're listening to this, come on, I'll have a private conversation with you, Kevin at BK Corner. I just would love to know what you have going on and test some of these ideas I have. I promise I won't be a nudge. I just want to know some facts and test these assertions so I can tell whether they're right or wrong. Now, I have encountered no less than two dozen beekeepers in my time who have given an unhonest try. And I know maybe one or two that are still there today. That's it, one or two. I know prominent, super talented commercial beekeepers that gave it a go and could not get it to work. They simply recognized the results after doing the tests and monitoring and decided it's just not going to happen. It wasn't worth the effort. I also know local hobbyists that are doing it well today and are mostly successful. And I know ones that don't do it well and are not successful. They're, they're a bit of a, a mess, but they keep going because they, that's what they're going to do. And they're not really gaining on it. I speak a little of the hypothetical and I don't use names, but my real year-on-year observation of one I know who is still at it is having great successes, great successes, doing really well. High attention to detail, supremely talented beekeeper, brings in good stock to the apiaries, brings in survivors, works with ferals where possible, is seeking out bee trees and such, has a reasonable location, which is closing in on him, unfortunately, but it has resources most of the year. And if you go back to what I think is optimal, you'll find that most of the boxes are checked. But this is the thing about this dynamic, and I've heard this outside of this particular example. In fact, um, something to do with Kirk Webster comes to mind. This dynamic. All goes well for a while until it doesn't. You breed survivors year on year. You get your apiary up to a good size. And then one year it happens. Booming survivor colonies in high percentages die. And it's awful. It's awful because here you have put your sweat and blood into all of these colonies. They're survivors. You're not having to treat. You're willing to make even more hives from them. You're awful excited. And then the grim reaper comes through and it wipes out half to three quarters of the stock. And it's not like you're losing so-so hives. You're losing some of the, the things that you have your literal skin in the game on. And this cyclical appearance of this, I do really well for two to three years, and then boom, it hits, occurs. And I have a smidge of a theory around it where if you get taken down in a big way, 
and you start to build new hives with genetic stock, it's more of a factor of young queens, young hives do really, really well. But once they get to that second, third, fourth year, something happens. There's just something wrong, and that's the the ticking time bomb in there. That's my personal theory, but I, I don't know that to be true. But what I do know to be true is that dynamic is real. I've seen it on several occasions. Um, time for a Kevin moment. I'm stepping away from this one example, I think, and I'm going to speculate. This happens more than treatment-free beekeepers admit. And Bob Kloss was telling me of a forum post that expressed the same observation in a treatment-free bee source uh, thread when I was reviewing this idea and telling him I was going to say something about it on this podcast. In the same way that I want to know how close these practicing treatment-free beekeepers are to other beekeepers, I would love to have this data on that dynamic. Does it happen that treatment-free beekeepers who have large yards have this cyclical loss in, in off years? Like every X number of years, something happens and they have to do a, a reset. End of Kevin moment. All right, I need to take that Kevin moment and steer this in a different direction for a bit. Treatment-free beekeepers, data is king. I'm politely trying to point out that you can help us non-treatment-free beekeepers more by sharing more information. There are just a common set of parameters that help frame the details of why a beekeeper is having a good run at it or not. Hive health, forage, resources, genetics proximity to the competition and all of these things I've been talking about, if these beekeepers would share their detail and then perhaps we can make the connection to the formula that makes it work for those that are having success and some of the others can emulate that. Let's play pretend that the thing each beekeeper reports by surprise is the hive makes excess propolis from birch trees. Now, how cool would it be to make the connection to start to migrate newly informed beekeepers in the direction for healthier hives? Because that's the thing that somehow under the covers is making treatment-free work. I made that up, but what we need is a bee-informed partnership with the data emphasis on how treatment-free beekeepers succeed instead of how not treating makes our hives die. That's what we need. There's a lack of something out there. And say your bees do not have that excellent excess propolis made from birch sap, then perhaps we could surmise that if you live in an area that have no birches, then treatment-free is not going to be for you. These are goofy, non-real-world examples, but the proximity to others, resource availability, other basics, how interesting would it be to build a profile? Treatment-free beekeepers, we need your data. We need your data to move forward. I've been straying, and I'm going to come back to that question we were exploring on the outset. The low incidence of treatment-free beekeepers in this mid-Atlantic region is likely due to a number of factors. I could speculate when this varroa mite problem surfaced, someone with influence, 
decided the best way to get along was to promote treating, and then through the desire to have problem resolutions, all of the bee characters in this region, this area, got that strong message from those in the know that chemicals were how you solve your problem. Listen to the scientists and the researchers. And if I think back to the Kumafos and Fluvalinate days, they killed mites dead. Dead. There was little fuss, little must. Put this stuff in your hive, your problem goes away. No need to consider treatment free. Simply treat. Gone. And humans like the idea. Go to the doctor, get a shot, back up and running through the miracle of modern medicine. Who wouldn't? When it stopped working, though, woo. <laughs> Another plausible idea through real-world evidence. Enough beekeepers tried to go treatment-free, and whether they did it right or wrong, the outcome was too many colonies were being lost. People were spending time and money to be a beekeeper, and they weren't surviving. So they looked for solutions, and those who were treating were having better survival rates, and the tide turned, spread across the region. And admittedly, Veteran beekeepers, associations, apiarists, commercial beekeepers, trainers, scientists, educators, they all came together to promote that the conventional way to go for this area in the Mid-Atlantic, as far as I've been exposed to, is to treat. And it makes me wonder out loud what a meeting might be like in an association in rural Montana. If we northeast beekeepers sat in one of their sessions or they sat in one of ours would we feel like we're attending a session from a foreign land i'd love to hear that would they sit there and wince be quiet and go wow these people are really like a shill for the chemical company gee i've heard that before <laughs> so all these people are known advocates of treating and we have some ideas of how this came to be but one of the things that has to be said is scientific evidence out there is backing up the treating way of life. And it's not the beekeepers doing this by gut. The mainstream science area that provides information to beekeepers, it supports the notion of treating. And that creates this world where the treatment-free beekeepers are the minority and they have to live and defend their ways of world and treatment beekeepers are saying they're good, they've got it right, and they're in the majority. It's obvious. So let's pretend it's all wrong. Let's look at this from the lesser hurt but equally valid treatment-free point of view. We're going to do a little test. If bees are capable of overcoming mites naturally in some instances, then those bees will survive. Bees have been on this earth for millions of years, and I have to think that if we humans perished from the earth today, that the bees would carry on, even with Varroa. What I'm saying is, I would want to think that in our absence, fighting bees would win. They would overcome. So why did we not let nature win? Why did we not choose that path? And do treaters have it backwards? And if so, why did they go down this less desirable path? I think it has to do with commerce. It has to come with individual benefits that one stands to lose. Because if we let nature take its course on its own sweet time, 
the impact at the moment that the Varroa came to our shores, to the individual and to commerce, would have been swift and painful. And so society had to fix the problem, and the problem they chose was go down the path of treating. Because commerce would not have the bees to pollinate while this correction would occur. There would be fewer bees to make honey for the commercial owner and the backyard beekeeper. We would have had to suffer all those bad things, cleaning out dead hives, if we let that way of thinking permeate. We couldn't make that decision as society. That's what the researchers and others said. But the fact of the matter is there are some scientists coming out today saying, you know, had we made that choice, we'd be a lot farther along these days. I guess it it really doesn't matter, because we are where we are today, and this is an odd thing to contemplate. can't change history. If revisionist history was true, and we could go back and revisit it, I wonder if we would make the same decision. I would hope we would all agree that treating would be the prudent choice, but no going back to it now. And I have to share a notion that is a rationalization, but speaks to our human nature. Man has been keeping bees for centuries, and as such, we see it our responsibility to the bees in the human-livestock relationship. It's not our nature to let things in our care suffer. Now, can a bee suffer? That's not a rabbit hole I want to go down, but I am positive that we beekeepers do not want colonies under our care to perish. If we see ourselves to those treaters as someone who has a moral obligation to things under our care, we are considered beekeepers, not beehavers. Now, treatment-free notions aside about what is good or not good for the species, humans, I think, would gravitate to thwart the loss of life even for honeybees, and it's likely inevitable that our problem-solving would lead us to whatever we could do to save our bees. And the funny thing is there's a bit of irony in this, that we have consciously decided to save the bees, which provides us benefit. But we really don't care about the mite, do we? I'm being silly to make a point, but maybe we could change our way of thinking, consider breeding mites, <laughs> and bees would be a notion of nature. Ah, uh, yeah, where did I go? Nature will decide what will live on, and it's likely that they will both find equilibrium, mites and bees, without or with our interference. Okay, it's time to move to the treatment-free perspective on queens. I'm going to move along to the next act. These acts get a little shorter as we go along. Act 3, as a reminder, I'm going to talk about the fallacy of queen genetics and clear the air. Try and rescue myself a little bit, and why I feel it's akin to Sisyphus rolling the rock up the hill for many of us. You have to love the mythical queen. I was watching a video that a listener sent me of Dr. David Tarpey speaking in North Carolina last week and lamenting that we beekeepers love to blame our beekeeping woes on our queens. It really was an insightful talk and a good reminder that all beekeepers have a loose and fast understanding of the true role that a queen plays. The treatment-free quest 
and more specifically the reliance of a queen to provide the right mix of genetic traits for this survival nature is the holy grail. Yet in the end, one of the fundamentals of colony management is breeding survivors and in some respects, much of what we desire in those survivors is attributed to the robustness of the colony's matriarch, the queen. If I try to think of it like a purist, then perhaps my perception is nature will provide me with the queen's I desire. And I say to this, the queen sought out from a breeder in particular are kind of an anomaly to the treatment-free way. Now, I'm not saying that treatment-free beekeepers do not seek out the best materials to work with from the beginning. What I'm saying is, I do not think the purists start the journey by calling providers of Minnesota hygienic for queens or for Purdue ankle biters. They're not ringing the phones of those who perform artificial insemination as part of their queen operation to source specific queens impregnated with the sperm from drones with desirable alleles. If you really want to follow the true treatment-free dogma, then I would think the best place to start out is with forest swarm traps, pulling in feral hives had no human intervention, and you're going to select the queens that have the makeup of genetic stock of the colony that is surviving out in the woods out in your neighborhood. Cleanest way, closest to what nature intended. There's got to be areas in the United States where that's the rule. When we were in Africa, they don't buy bees. They just don't do it. They put a box out and eventually a swarm moves in. That has to happen in places in the United States. I remember interviewing Jason Bronze. He was the beekeeper who was focused, it was in episode number 49. He's probably the most prolific person I've spoken about catching swarm hives, ferals. I think he even wrote a book or a paper on it you could seek out and find on the internet. If we take that scenario where this is happening routinely, and if you're diligent enough, you could put swarm traps up and, and get these bees and constant flow of refreshing what you have, good for you. I don't think that's going to be the case in New Jersey. And so that takes us to the difficulty where the practicality in your apiary to foster good genetics from each of the hives sitting in your yard will have that rules of engagement where you're in and amongst other people's hives. I'm wondering if I have this wrong, but supposing I don't, then they're not mating with your drones, meaning drones that are good genetic material, because a queen is going to fly farther than the drones in her yard. And unless you have other yards situated away, where your queen is flying away from her drones, but flying to drones that you're supplying that has your genetic materials in it, you're mating with everybody else's. And how many, ask this question, how many of you know every beekeeper within flight range of your hives and how many of them are controlling their genetic stock to your liking? 
I'm not sure how that works in New Jersey. So I'm not saying there aren't good queens. I'm not saying that it's not beneficial to bring a Minnesota hygienic or somebody's local source queen that's survivor stock into your apiary. What I'm saying is it's a short win. In time, that queen and their daughters, as they continue the generations of survivors, are going to get diluted by mixing with drones from other hives that you have no control over. So, I, I, I will reiterate this point over and over again. A magical queen in one hive is only going to get you so far. It's not a long-term gain. Yes, it's great that you're putting those genetics in your yard and that you're fostering them out for your neighbors. But for every one of your purchased queens, there's 10 package hive queens running. <laughs> and this is why, as much as I believe in good quality queens, now there's another aspect to this that Trape and Free Beekeepers talk about. Let's talk about the difference between a, a particularly sourced queen with explicit genetics and a queen who's a mutt that is raised locally but adaptable to current conditions and is surviving. Which one would you take? Would you take an ankle biter or local girl doing her own thing over here? I think I would go for the local girl. I would agree with the treatment free ones on this. And the reason being is we're messing with nature. A treatment free beekeeper will argue that trying to select a special bee for the specific traits is unselecting other traits that eventually may be more beneficial. I don't know if my local girl over here that's doing great with Varroa is also good at other things, but I also know that she's not messed with. Now, we're performing pressures by selecting survivor bees that may not survive the future. I, I, you know, God, what a mess. Makes my head hurt. So there's one way to fix this. But we don't want to do this. And for our own reasons. Returning to the Mid-Atlantic. Suppose we buy this good queen. Or we source local good genetics. And our bees are, our drones go out, and when they come back, they filter into some of the other hives. So there's maybe some uh, things going on. And our daughters are going out, and they're getting mated, and we're using them to make newer hives. The real answer would be to let our survivor hives swarm like crazy. Let them swarm. Let them go out into the neighborhood, and let them be this is how it should get fixed, be the neighborhood bees. If we could saturate the area with our good genetics and not just bring in a local queen every once in a while, that would be a really fascinating way to go. But however, when you live in New Jersey and your bees are in your neighbor's chimney, that's not a good thing. So the locals around here in densely populated areas will say, nay, nay, don't let your bees swarm. You're not a good beekeeper when you're doing that. So it's a catch-22 situation. We want to spread our genetics, but yet we don't want our bees to be swarming and impacting all our not-understanding neighbors. Again, I say, what a mess. Now I go back to 
can I find a treatment-free beekeeper who's having success? And I add another thing to the success formula. Isolation, good location, good forage, good genetics, and ability to let the hives swarm. I often wonder if there were a time that I could have started beekeeping in a super remote place, one that had all those desirable traits for natural beekeeping, and I did it for 10 years. I let the bees be with nature. Swarms be good to go. Lots of hives. I cull my losing hives. I keep all my survivor hives. Find this equilibrium no outside interference. I could be the grizzly Adams of beekeeping. Maybe I'm too old, uh, too old of a reference for you there. I would grow a beard. <laughs> if I would have bred survivors and somebody from bee culture showed up in my yard, they would think it's a miracle. What could have happened that this person's able to be a treatment-free beekeeper? If we only had time machines, it would be amazing to try that and see whether it works. So I guess in the end, unless you're able to control the ecosystem around you, and you have a meaningful influence on the gene pool, more than just queens in your box, in your yard, amongst the sea of beekeepers, or you could somehow influence a better-than-average genetic gene pool in the neighborhood and have everybody stay committed to good queens, You'd have to do it. You'd have to get everybody in the region to take explicit action. It's a bit of a nebulous topic to convey, and I hope my candor about the mythical queen genetics fixing everything and that I don't believe it's true has come through. I'm not saying that there aren't good queens and it's not worth having good queens in your boxes. I'm looking at a bigger picture saying... One good queen does not a great enterprise make for the world. We need lots of good queens. We love great queen genetics here at the beekeeper's corner. <laughs> but I don't think they're going to solve the bigger problem unless we figure out a way to have great queen genetics, local queen genetics, I think Bob Kloss for president, because that's one of his favorite things to promote. Act 4, we're coming to the closing part of this. Let's talk about going treatment-free. Let's talk about doing it. I know, advice from a treatment guy, but it has been deliberated over, and in the end, I'm going to give you a treatment solution. Sorry, wah, wah, wah. Brilliant, but not mine. But let's talk about things. Number one, start and end with good bees. This is coming up with a way you should put out swarm traps, source from feral bees, get good bees in your box. Then when you're up and running, let your bees swarm in your neighborhood if you can and not terrorize your neighbors and replenish your genetics in the local ecosystem. Get into the program of sharing your bees with others that surround you. Number two is about resources. Good resources solve a lot of ills. If bees have good nutrition, they have the building blocks to be as healthy as they can be. 
The common things about this, abundance of nectar at the right times, diversity of pollen across the spectrum of time needed. Each of these things play a role in the physical quality of each and every bee in the hive, and good nutrition and resources also play, as scientists tell us, a pivotal role in supporting the immunity systems in the colony and the individual bees. I think this could be something that makes certain treatment-free scenarios work because there's something about feral colonies that are found to live with a lot of mites and maybe it has something to do with the support resources that tips the scales and provides them something that they can live with them. I'm going to give you a word. It's called terroir. It has to do with the natural environment that impacts the subject of interest, the bees, and informs on what the local surroundings are. The term has more meaning in winemaking. It talks about the soil and the topography and the climate and the other factors that impart characteristics to the grapes. And since our bees are such creatures of the earth, I can only think that the word terroir to a great extent is equivalent to you are what you eat. Number three, beating this one, find isolation. For number one to work for you, you need to be in a place where your bees live in the wild, and ideally your bees are unencumbered by exposure to weaker bees. I have to stop here for a moment and protest what I hear sometimes in forums. I'm sorry, I'm skeptical. I, I can't believe that those who are having success do not live in and amongst bees that are impacting them in any meaningful way just if you I don't think that you could take a hive that's surviving in Oshkosh and put it in the middle of a large density of hives that are not being managed in a non-treatment free way and have it behave the same way I'm not saying that a person who has treatment free bees that are surviving does not live in isolation of hives that could impact them, but I don't think that they could take severe pressure from them. I don't know how to articulate this well. I'm just not convinced. I also wonder if um, it would be a great question to go back to Randy Oliver and wonder if he had these thoughts over in Grass Valley, California. I'm not familiar with the U.S. left coast, but I have to imagine that Los Angeles, San Francisco, those other metro areas have a similar challenge to what we see in the mid-Atlantic region. I hinted at this earlier, but if you look at certain NASA maps from space and you see the U.S. lit up in the dark, if you're in an area where lights are continuous over the terrain, it's likely going to have a hard time finding isolation. I'm thinking that light pollution can loosely serve as a guide to whether you have an appropriate amount of isolation. It's an interesting idea, right? Number four, experience and knowledge of the beekeeper. I guess this is kind of a funny one in some respects, but if the treatment-free mantra is let them be, then why does a beekeeper need experience and knowledge? The treatment-free lifestyle does not require monitoring or heavy maintenance, but they are beekeepers, not bee-havers. 
To get to treatment free, you have to understand beekeeping and assessing the colonies at the individual level, see how they're performing. You have to know what brood patterns look like, colony performance through inspections. I don't think it's literally like this hive survived the winter and I'm okay with it. If anything, you have to have aptitude for swarm traps, moving comb into hives, and all the things that come with the swarm lifestyle. So, treatment-free beekeepers, by their style, will do more than just let them be in a box. And I think, again, there's different flavors of them. So, some of them are doing integrated pest management. All these things lead to the true fact that you have to know about bees. It's not put them in a box and watch them go. I, I don't think that any treatment-free beekeeper is a bee haver. Number five to success, perseverance and constitution. On that same thing, I think treatment-free is a lifestyle. You're going to get started. You're going to get in the groove. You're going to find your path. Spring and summer days, out catching feral swarms, assessing colonies for health, making choice on how to move forward with selections, making gains, suffering setbacks, recovering from setbacks. I think any who aspire to the lifestyle of being a treatment-free beekeeper, I think it can be underestimated. I'm not one in that community, so this is speculation, but given that I'm a treater, I'm familiar with these dynamics, and why would it not be that way, too, for a treatment-free person? It may even be more tenuous for a treatment-free beekeeper. I started saying there are five major principles, but the truth is there's one more. It's the euphemism for treatment-free beekeeping, which is to call it the Bond Method. It harkens to the title of the first major blockbuster I ever saw in a theater called Live and Let Die. The 1973 Robert Moore James Bond movie, which is a so-so movie, but by the way, a great book. You have to embrace that, of course, you're going to let your good hives live, but you have to sit by while your bad hives die. No interventions. They either live or you let them die. Survival of the fittest demands it. And no beekeeper wants to watch a hive die. Nobody wants to clean up dead outs. There may be five principles in my mind about the backstory of being a treatment-free beekeeper, but this one diversion from the norm of what most beekeepers believe, which is, as custodians of livestock, we're going to purposely let something die with the rationalization that it's better for the world. Now, I've heard a counterpoint to this also, of course, in a treatment-free beekeepers forum. Sheep, domesticated. Cows, domesticated. Dogs, domesticated. Livestock and the things that we keep in the barn, domesticated. Bees are not. Bees are not domesticated. They are still bees. We have not domesticated them in the same way. If we left this earth, they would continue to survive where our domesticated animals or things in our care would generally perish because we've changed them, altered them in some way. Bees are wild creatures, nature intended, and we simply keep them to exploit them, 
and ironically while under our stewardship, whether they're in a bee tree in nature or in our box, they're going to survive one way or another without us. We need not lay the burdens of their demise at our feet. I guess it's only our convoluted notions of thinking that we're enforcing a different reality that compels us to feel bad when a colony deteriorates. <laughs> because we tend to place an undue affection for things we choose to care for. And, you know, if you have the right constitution and fortitude, you'll learn to get over it. As letting bees die for the good of the species and for the way that nature intended it is the way that nature wants to be. So, you know what? Maybe we should stop trying to interfere and embrace, live, and let die. That's the message there. I spent a little time talking about the key details that would make a successful recipe for a run at treatment free. That's what that was about. Since there is no book, there is no guide, there's very little single thing, you know, resource for you to follow endorsed by Treatment Free Beekeepers Association of America. I'm going to make it up. Right bees, great location, isolation, experience, knowledge, perseverance, let bees die. That's it. That's the recipe. I made it up. I hope I got it right. Time will tell. With all that at, the, at our back, we could talk about the scenarios, the situations by which to operate in a treatment-free style. Because we have those things, now we can figure out how we're going to do it. So let's talk about our options. Option number one is simply do it. You, by luck of the draw, have all the parts and pieces of the recipe. You have a good location. You have whatever isolation is required. You already have sourced feral bees and done all of that stuff. You're an experienced and knowledgeable beekeeper. You have perseverance and constitution. And you're willing to let bees die. So off you go. Make it happen, Captain. Ready to go. I mean, option number one is suitable option for some people. And if you're in that condition and you want to be a treatment-free beekeeper, go for it. If you're not in that, then we have to give you some alternatives. So option number two is either through growing to be a monster or through collaboration, dominate the space. What if you were the biggest player in the space? What if you could dominate the gene pool and instead of neighbors impacting you, you're influencing your neighbors with good genetics. It's not as pragmatic as many of us would not have the ability to influence our space to dominate the landscape. It's more like each of us are a little fish in a big pond. However, there's differing ways to go about some things. Our association, the Northwest Branch of New Jersey, is made up of around 150 beekeepers from Hunter and Warren counties in New Jersey. If I go back to that light map from NASA, which shows how many people are living in some place by the number of lights shining into space, and it somewhat represents densities, the dimmer section of the glow in New Jersey is the lower left-hand side, up more Sussex and, and uh, north, but our area almost, right? 
our state is not as populous as which exit do you live on side of the state, which is the other side of the state over by New York and has the Card State Parkway running north and south. I guess it's one of those, you have to understand the skit from Saturday Night Live where everybody wants to know what exit you live on. If I play pretend for a better future, what if our beekeepers could align on a strategy and do this collaboratively? I spoke about this before, and one problem with this is, I think even though we have a lot of beekeepers in our association, I bet there's triple the amount of beekeepers present, and two-thirds of them are not in our association, and we'd be working with them. I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I don't see this as something that's actually going to come to fruition. But however, if you could get one-third of the population supplying good genetics in time, I do think you can make an impact. I really do. And so I hold a fondness for the idea that maybe somewhere we could promote this across the state of New Jersey and like Billy Davis in Virginia, who I met at a Morris Somerset County meeting many years ago, who was distributing Queens down in Virginia, we could do this in New Jersey. It's it's possible. Take a coordinated effort and a lot of communication. That's option two. Dominate the space. Option three. The hard way. You're just... Do it and screw it. That's the way it is. I don't care if I'm a little fish in a big pond. I don't care how many neighbors I have. I don't care what kind of genetics are out there floating around in my neighborhood. I'm going to do it. I'm going to commit every year to doing nothing but breed from my survivors. Damn the torpedoes. Damn the excuses. Pull up my bootstraps. Declare my allegiance to the treatment-free approach in all its principles. Smile and wave at my treatment-loving beekeepers who are my neighbors and go all in. If you're going to do this then you have to do what a lot of people know. You have to build more hives because you're going to lose hives. So if you want five hives, maybe you need a third more or a half more. Maybe you need ten hives so that when five of them die. Now the percentages in New Jersey show that anywhere from 40 to 60% die when not treated. So maybe you need more than double the hives. If you want five hives, you may have to do 12 or more. Um, as I think about this, Solomon Parker, noted treatment-free advocate, has this thing he calls, which I don't know if it's exactly this technique, expansion model beekeeping. You could go look that up. Yeah, that's a way to go. Just heck with it. But there is one other option for those who are not in control of the neighborhood. And it's the option I'm going to put out here as the most viable option. And again, I'm going to remind you, it has to do with treating. I first heard of this in a talk from Megan Milbrath in 2016, Philly Beekeepers Guild Natural Symposium. I I think it was 16. You know what? It could have been 17. Anyway, option four, the final option I'm going to present, 
what I want to leave you with is Tords Treatment Free. It's called Tords because it involves treating. Right up front, I'm going to tell you about that. But there's a reason. There's a dynamic I haven't spoken about that's a side story to condemning the let them be philosophy. And it's been given a, an ominous name to even make it more mm, unpalatable. The moniker is called Might Bombs. I don't know who came up with that label, but in the recent years, everybody come to understand what this means, and it's a polarizing subject. It's likely the studies around the so-called Might Bombs that uh, gave some sort of epiphany towards this treatment-free, towards treatment-free approach. That's speculation on my part, but actually, I'm wondering if that's what made someone make this connection. Might Bomb. It's a documented, debated dynamic of a dying colony. The belief is the mites do not always go down with the ship. If the hive dies and there's no food for them, the mites are going to die. But when a colony is under immense stress while being overcome by mites, bees are said to behave in a way that creates this mite bomb phenomenon. As mite loads increase, one could surmise that there would be mites traveling on the bodies of the bees because the queen is sick, she's not laying as many eggs, the, the bees are coming out, but the colony is kind of imploding. Any of the bees that are in the cells are dying, they're ill, they're... So mites are coming out of the cells, but there's no place to go back into. And colonies that are overwhelmed by mites have an explosion of mites, they have to go somewhere. A lot of them start getting onto the bees themselves. And these foragers are flying out and contaminating the landscape with more bees as they keep going out. More than usual for the geography. In addition to this idea, it's known that when a colony is under stress and finds hive environment unsuitable, one of its defense mechanisms is to abscond. They abscond, mites and all. And it's this idea that has spurned the concept of the mites not going down with the ship and dying with the colony. They simply hitch a ride out with the absconding bees to infect another day. And where are they going? In your healthy hives. Treatment-free beekeepers, because of this let them be thing, were blamed for this. They're blamed for causing this. If you don't treat, you're polluting the entire neighborhood. Treatment-free beekeepers, rightfully so, sometimes say, it's the opposite. If treaters would not have fostered bad bees, then... This wouldn't happen with frequency because more hives would survive and you're actually putting more mites into the ecosystem. You're perpetuating it by treating. That idea, the little nugget of suggestion, is addressed in some ways by the final option that I'm going to present, which takes us back to the concept towards treatment free. Now the ironic part, it's an approach which you get to treatment free from treating. It's not treatment free, so we get that out of the way. It's not. It's mm, kind of like treatment free. 
with a big asterisk. But in the long term, the focus and goal is still the same. You're going to end up being treatment free. The beauty of this method is it has a chance to work in areas which are not in isolation, where isolation is not in the cards, and you're facing challenges. The plan is this. If you follow the Megan Milbrath guidance for save lives by monitoring hives, that's towards treatment free. Core to the approach is you monitor all your hives. And the simplistic instruction is, if the hive is above the threshold, you treat it. You treat it. You're killing the mites in the hives that can't handle the mites. And then you come back and requeen those hives with good genetics from your survivor hives. So you breed from your survivors and you treat your duds. That's it. The beauty of this is it's so simplistic. And while some treatment-free beekeepers will probably disdain this suggestion, in my estimation, it's the strongest possible option to meet in the middle where treatment-free beekeepers can at least get the treatment person off their back, right? And both sides are coming up with the same outcome. In fact, it might actually have some advantage because hives that die in the treatment-free way become a liability to their surroundings. I mean, if you subscribe to that notion, they'll be stopped and requeened. And the right genetics will soon be the result of this. I mean, let's play this through a bit. Season after season, you monitor your hives. The ones that are not doing well with this treatment-free approach would die. I'm a treatment-free beekeeper. I've got 10 hives, maybe 20%, 30% die. While they're dying, those are the bad hives. Same terrible genetics, but their drones are going out. And they're putting 30% of bad genetics out. Now, some beekeepers will come in and take those hives and cull them right away. They're going to gas them. They're going to do whatever. Even treatment-free people don't like that idea. They usually say, let them go and see if they can make it. Maybe they'll eke their way out of it and become an amazing survivor hive. But some beekeepers, they're going to see if this hive is going down. They're getting rid of it so that they can thwart that dynamic I just spoke of, of this thing is supplying bad genetics to the ecosystem. They're on kill for this. Now, if you go back to the treating hive you monitor all your hives and the ones that don't do well you're treating them you're killing the mites so if that hive was going to go down it's not distributing its mites but yet you're not penalizing the bees for the queen's bad genetics now bees rotate every 21 days a new bee is born if you're talking about the workers the the entire colony is cycling all the time, but the queen's the one that's in there, and she's driving whether this is her, a good or a good, uh, a good or a bad genetic stock. So, if you have a hive that you monitored, that the thresholds were poor, they're not doing well with the mites, and you treat it, maybe you put apivar in it. Beyond the 42 days that the apivar's in there zapping all your mites, so that they're not 
dispersing across the neighborhood. Hopefully you can go over here to your good hive, generate a queen if it's in the season, or maybe you bank some queens when you cut out the cells, and you can immediately come over here and turn the tide on your bad hives. I think this is so brilliant. I think this is really smart. I can't see a downside to it. I'm sure treatment-free teams will evaluate this, and maybe they'll find something I'm not thinking of. Now, the bad news is, I treated that hive. I put chemicals in it. I polluted its ecosystem. Maybe the vestiges of the treatment are going to interfere with the survivability of that hive. I, I don't know these things. Um, but if the treatment-free people could be a little bit softer on the treatment people and say, well, at least they're building good genetics. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where that goes. The other thing that happens with these not-so-good-a-lot bees is they probably did build honey. They probably built frames of pollen and other things which you could theoretically source for factory bees, like a nuke or something. That's an aside. In the end, bad hives are converted to hives that breed survivor stock. They foster good genetics. They're not a loss or a liability. You don't have to clean up a dead hive. Only the strong hives are bred from, just like treatment-free. It's less expensive because you're only treating hives that need to be treated. A lot of beekeepers these days are treating everything. They're just not worrying about it. They don't even monitor. They just three times a year are treating. And in time, same outcomes. All treatment-free bees, all survivor stock, no treatments going in. Ah, yeah. Different way to get to the same end. Megan wrote an article about her approach in bee culture. If you want to read her take on it, and I really suggest you do. July 2019, Bee Culture, article on page 54, and it's entitled, as I said, Save Lives, Monitor Hives. All the credit goes to her. If you don't have the paper version, you can go to the web. Graciously, the Bee Culture website has posted that article, and we'll have a link to it in our show notes. I guess that brings us to a close. The funny thing is, is there's probably about twice as many dynamics I've run through my head and had to call myself out from not presenting in this program. Things, little nuances about behaviors and management practices and location and bees and boxes and, but they'll have to come some other time. I got a little excited there at the end. <laughs> I could hear my voice up a, an octave or two. But I, you know what's most ingratiating to me is the fact that I finally can have a logical discussion about this. I've been holding off. I've, I've put little hints here and there throughout my podcasts, but always held back on what I was thinking saying, feeling about this, and now I've kind of put it out here. I'm interested to see the reaction, but yet I don't really need a reaction, and someday again I think I'll come back and listen to this. It was a bit of a mess, because 
I was all over the place through this because I, I really could not find one cohesive thread to put all the ideas together. So I kind of was working from freeform bulleted lists of ideas that had to be presented. But in the end, I hope I did this a service. I hope it starts an interesting discussion. And more importantly, I kind of hope... Look, treatment-free beekeepers are advocates for themselves, as they should be. Or, on the opposite side of it, they're quiet and they hide and don't say anything to anybody. I would really like treatment beekeepers to take a fresh look at this, to understand the dynamics. And on the flip side, as I was very clear about, I would love to see treatment beekeepers talk more about the facts and figures that drive success or influence the way things manifest. Um, it's all about starting the dialogue. Put myself out there, and it'll be interesting to uh, see whether this gets any reaction. So we'll see. I've enjoyed presenting it, even though I feel like um, I, I'm in a moment where I just went through all of that. And I'm thinking about the 85,000 things I spoke about and whether or not I did it justice and, and whether it strung together to cohesive thoughts. I'll offer this. Um, I presented this topic to our Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association just the other night. It's like treatment-free light. If this overwhelmed you and you want to see some basics of the same discussion, it's funny, I'm telling you now at the end, but you can go watch youtube.com slash nwnjba. The presentation is towards treatment free. You'll see a video recording of me presenting this to the association. It's a little more distilled down and, and concise. I had a good time. I really did. I'm pleased at the fact that this is finally out here. And I am so fascinated to see where the, where it takes, whether it's quiet, whether there's feedback, whether it starts some sort of talk amongst New Jersey beekeepers. I'm fascinated to know. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be well. Appreciate you stopping by. <laughs>